Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I was incredibly fortunate to pin down Paulo Cerrone on a recent trip to Toronto. Paulo is a thought leader, author, and currently works at IBM Watson Financial Services in the IBM Industry Academy and spends all of his time thinking about our relationship with money and how it's evolving based on technology and space. And with that, here's my interview with Paulo Cerrone. Hello, Paulo. Thank you for coming in. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm just incredibly fortunate you were in Toronto for this. Yes, Toronto is like my second home. I've been coming so many times uh, and it's a great community. It's a great city. I just love to be here. Fantastic. And you're based out of Germany, correct? I'm based out of Germany. I'm Italian. I actually live in the two places, in Milan and in Frankfurt. Well, I do envy that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's wonderful. Anyway, so uh, Paulo, uh, you work for IBM. So tell us about your role at IBM and IBM Watson. Well, I am a member of the Industry Academy of IBM for the Watson Financial Services. The Industry Academy is a team of 100 people worldwide that create conversations with the industry in order to put together, if you like, uh, the entrepreneurs on one side and the financial institutions, that's what they do, the regulators uh, together with the technology providers. And uh, I never try, I always try not to forget the individual investors, so each and every one of us, because ultimately we have to consume innovation, we have to consume technology. So it's super important that we understand uh, how we work uh, and how we deal with money, because otherwise we may spend time in uh, creating new ideas, but they will never break through. So this is basically the role that I have. And... Um, in this role, uh, I'm uh, traveling continuously, so I'm meeting clients uh, and I'm meeting the innovation scene in uh, all continents, which is a great opportunity to understand what is really going on and basically to identify the things which are in common in the various areas and the things which instead are different so they can only work in Asia, for example, they might not work in Canada or uh, mm. or in the US. And then all of this uh, was... cultural uh, or also regulatory or combination? It's both. It's both. It's, both. Yeah. it's about uh, the regulation that uh, is uh, creating different possibilities for the business models locally, but it's also the way people relate with money or relate with digital. If you think of China, China is an extreme case. So a lot of Chinese were really born digital in a completely different configuration. And so the way they use technology is different from uh, the Western world. If you like, uh, I like to see the world this way. In the US in particular, uh, technology was born and still this is the case, largely speaking. Europe likes the regulation, which is important. <laughs> and China has the business model. Now, mm -hmm. we need to have the three of them and being capable of combining them in a proper way because they're all important. The business model is key because if you just have technology and you don't know how to use it, it will not break through. Regulation is fundamental because you need to protect the investors and you need to make sure that we don't lose touch with the interest of the final consumer or the final investor. And of course, technology is what enables you now to provide better services at cheaper prices. We have a lot to talk about. So can you tell me about your history and how you came to be where you are today? Well, I actually started my career in banking. I was head of quantitative risk management for financial institutions, and I've been doing that for like 15 years. And then one day I decided to create my startup, my fintech. It was 2008, mm -hmm. so I moved to Germany. And the idea was to 
innovate in quantitative methods by applying goal-based investing principles to extend the capability of financial advisors and the relationship managers in retail banks to talk to the respective customers, basically to change the narrative, move out of the product distribution channel and get into the analysis of the needs and the fears of the investors. In essence, it's a wealth allocation framework. And that really required the usage of API technology, so being capable of providing insights on whatever medium that the advisor might want to use in order to create a more substantiated and institutionalized conversations with its client. So that was um, running for like four or five years. And then in 2012, basically end of 2012, IBM bought my small fintech. So I joined IBM. And so IBM basically asked me to take this role for the Industry Academy and to start this uh, fintech total leadership, which is super important because uh, it is not easy today to understand change, to understand technology for the good and for the bad. And the financial institutions, as well as the network of advisors, needs to learn how to make the best use of that so that they can be augmented in their capability of serving the client. And at the same time, they can provide more value to the client. And if you like, this puts me at odds with many influencers in the fintech community. I don't think that technology or fintech is here to disrupt the industry. I actually think that the industry is already self-disrupting because of the global financial crisis. Mm. If you think about what happened in 2007, 2008, so many foreclosures in uh, in the US and that crippled across the globe and affected uh, Europe with the euro crisis. So the regulators started raising the cost of capital, which forced the banks to de-risk their portfolios, mm. basically to abandon high yield uh, relationships and focus on uh, better quality for their credit portfolios, which meant uh, actually to reduce uh, the profitability of their lending operations. Uh, and also it meant that some of their existing customers could not have been serviced any longer, opening up the space for uh, peer-to-peer lending and those type of platforms. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, uh, the central banks uh, applied quantitative easing, which uh, basically lowered the interest rates to the limit. Uh, that also means negative in some countries. Think about Switzerland. So basically, there's no more uh, meat on the bone uh, when you look at the interest rate margin on the balance sheet of banks. So banks started thinking that they had to focus on the intermediation margin, which is made of two things. It's made of uh, payments, and then it's made of uh, asset management and investment product, mm-hmm. which I would call the well management. When I say well management, I have a broad definition. It means to me every product which is sold to an individual, being that individual a retail client, an affluent, a high net worth, or a ultra high net worth. Okay. Now, what is happening in this space is that on the one side, technology is effectively creating a potential for disintermediating payments um, through digital payments and instant payments, That's which would further... we've seen the biggest push in. I mean, the most yes. fintechs all over the place. In essence, yeah. you know, was one of the first uh, experiences in the fintech ecosystem and maybe the easiest, if you like. I mean, that because it's even like, like PayPal and before that, right? I mean, oh, exactly. So yeah. it's, not, it's nothing new, if you like. No. It's just that now it can be brought to a bigger scale. And in this case, we may want to discuss... Uh, a bit about what happens in China because it's truly amazing and interesting. So that you see, if banks start losing uh, on the profitability linked to payments because of digital payments, and they may also risk a disintermediation because the clients may start uh, using different mediums so they don't recognize uh, the bank anymore for the payment. Exactly. It also happens that the margins for uh, investment management are also going uh, being squeezed continuously. 
And this is different reasons. In, in North America, it's more uh, driven by the competition. If you like in the US, for example, the vanguardization, so the passive investing uh, saga. In Europe, uh, which is more dominated by banking network, uh, this will be driven by regulation this year is the year of regulation in Europe. We've got four regulations uh, that are getting into place. Mm -hmm. One of these is the MIFID II, which is the regulation that focuses on the protection of the investors that creates a higher level of transparency in the discussion between the financial institution and the investor. And by creating transparency, this might force uh, a compression of uh, the cost, which are uh, basically owned by the client, uh, and that will uh, create a further necessity for financial institutions to find a new value proposition. So all in all, uh, disruption is already part of the industry. Now, given that, I think the fintech innovation is not the source of disruption, but it's the opportunity for the industry to transform. Mm -hmm. How is uh, this industry supposed to change? Well, I think that this industry has to change from um, a transaction mechanism where you make money by selling products which have an embedded uh, commission or, or fee into packaging those products uh, into something which is called advice that the clients are willing to pay for transparently. And this applies uh, to both uh, the families, business, uh, like uh, the well-managed operations mm -hmm. and the small-medium businesses, so partnership or consulting for, uh, for corporate. And I think this is uh, the biggest shift that the industry is asked to perform. And it's not easy because uh, it really means rewiring the way the whole industry works. With a better compensation being in place. With a completely with different compensation. Yeah. But this is the reason why I believe that um, well management and in particular financial advice has in itself the secret sauce to help the industry to digitize and to transform because the business model by which uh, an individual trusts the relationship with a professional and is willing to pay a fee to be advised in his uh, investment decision is part of uh, the well-management relationship. It's not part of uh, the mortgages business or the lending business. Agreed. Now, so, question there. Now, in your mind, what is driving that transparency push right now? Well, I think that the um, global financial crisis uh, demonstrated to a lot of investors that the trust that they positions into the intermediaries was not always uh, well-placed. Mm -hmm. And the regulators has to step up and basically mm -hmm. raise uh, the toughen the rules in a sense, right? In order to make sure that uh, more value is transferred to the investors. And so it's a combination of the imbalances of finance, uh, starting from the late 80s when we had the deregulation of international capital markets, which created more volatility in the financial markets, a lot of volumes, money flowing very fast uh, across yeah. the borders, and the need of uh, protecting the investors uh, way more. And I think this should not be forgotten. The first uh, person that uh, tweeted uh, about my second book, The Fintech Innovation, that uh, is a subtitle from Robo-Advisors to Gold-Based Investing and Gamification, is the founder of one of the Robo-Advisors in Europe. And he said, this Paolo Cironi has a strange point of view. He says <laughs> that, uh, yeah, he says... Which I love because I agree with your book yeah, entirely. Yeah. But can, yeah, that's <laughs> okay. You know, that is a French. But he said that regulation is the engine of innovation. And I think it is, in a sense, because um, I'm not looking for uh, disruptive innovation, which is something yeah. that uh, lowers uh, the margins, uh, simplifies the products to the limit, uh, and only works uh, in a volume business. I'm looking for sustaining innovation, which is the innovation that enables to 
create an industry where value is transferred to the investors or the consumers and they are appreciating that they're happy to pay for but at the same time the financial advisor or the wealth management institution is capable of if you like playing that margin because at the yeah. end they are entrepreneurs or uh, enterprises now if you think about the banks the banks have a hard time in transforming their business model because uh, not just that they have to deal with uh, legacy systems but they have to deal with legacy leadership so now <laughs> they're always five years away from retirement exactly so, but, but yeah. we go back to the point that the business model is super important so that it is not the problem of technology these days mm-hmm. the problem is which is the best business model that enables both parties of this game of finance to be happy so the financial institution and the final investor so now regulators by raising the bar of the playing field are forcing the banker to rethink the way they run the show. So now they're facing this alternative. Either they decided to become volume businesses, mm-hmm. which may be a win in the short, but then becomes a weakness in the medium to long term because if you become a volume business, commoditized distribution of commoditized products, basically utility, and you think of having only digital touch points, the big tech companies may come. They have many more touch points on digital with a client and they can take the business. Mm-hmm. On the other side, they have the opportunity of revising their business model. So moving from transactions, which means volumes, to services, that means added value for the client, and basically stay relevant by recreating a relationship where the engagement with the client is more important than the experience because it's about the relationship. The value is in the relationship. Now, the point is to understand what the relationship means. Because this is the essence of a successful digitization. Mm. I see a lot of guys thinking that uh, as long as uh, you are agile into the creation of new products, for example, the challenger banks, you can be successful because you can deploy new products uh, in a shorter period of time now. The problem with this model is that it's still a product-driven business model. It's not client-centric. It is focusing on low-margin products, uh, which needs to be taken by a big volume business in order to become sustainable and profitable. And it's winner take all more or less, right? Because those cost efficiencies drive down the cost to near yes. zero. And how many players can, can survive? Absolutely. Like a digital has plays on, on both sides. It might make uh, the cost to build more accessible, but it also reduces uh, the margins, right? And well, therefore, ETFs the being given away at like less than five basis points in some cases because they're doing it on overnights. I mean, how much the margin's gone? Like The it, zero price race exactly. uh, is never a good race, right? And also, you see what I'm thinking? I'm thinking that I, I come from risk management. Now, mm-hmm. managing and reducing the cost uh, is always important, uh, but uh, the cost can bite your sandwich while the risk can eat your lunch. So the problem here is to make sure that the investor understand what he's doing with his money through the cycle, because uh, you know things change uh, in his life. There is an instability of the investor that you need to take care of, and things change in the financial markets. There's an instability of financial markets that you need to factor into yeah. your uh, decision making. So that if being a volume business uh, doesn't give you an advantage in the long term, the alternative is uh, to being capable of uh, digitizing the relationship. So what is the relationship? The relationship is uh, about knowledge because trust is knowledge because that's uh, the way people basically think. And actually, I think that this is what the Silicon Valley did not really understand uh, when they started looking at fintech and banking. When when the likes of um, Wealthfront comes out and say they're looking to put all advisors out of business, 
I think you're right. Like they're, they, I've often said, it's the old analogy, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? They think they can automate away all human humanity to some degree. Not everybody, but, but many Not of them. Everybody. But the reality is, is that the human interaction is absolutely a value and having someone deal with all the immensity of what is becoming the fintech space and understanding how to translate that into the relationship. Now, let me say that there are, uh, if you like, uh, parts of banking uh, uh-huh. which uh, can be more easily digitized as uh, a product mechanism. Absolutely. But as we just said, those products are losing steam. Mm-hmm. So they will, the digitization of those product channels won't take you that far. Now, the question is, how do you digitize the most important elements of banking, which are the relationships and the lead banks, to generate value by selling investment products and insurance products. So the reason uh, why Silicon Valley misunderstood uh, this, uh, this industry is because they thought that uh, the same uh, uh, psychology forces that motivate uh, the consumers when they buy products on Amazon mm. equally applies uh, to investment products and insurance products. In reality, digital is what I call uh, a pool technology while investing and insuring works in a push economy. That means digital is demand-driven, while uh, investing and insuring uh, is uh, offer-driven. This is an offer-driven industry. How can I explain it to you? Let me give you this example. I actually live in Frankfurt, I said, and my family is in Milan, I live in both places. So every weekend uh, I go back home to my family. And my role uh, is to do the groceries. So every Saturday morning I got to do the groceries, right? So I go to the supermarket, to the mall, and, you know, I, I want to be very fast autopilot. I don't want to waste time. So I start pulling from the shelves the things I need. I pull my milk. I pull mm-hmm. my, my bread. I pull my pasta. And then I may see a different product, maybe a shampoo that is advertised by, by someone famous. And it's pushed at me. And I may decide to change my consumption habit. But in reality, for the majority of the things I do, I go with a purpose. I pull from the shelf. Now... You, Jason, never told me, Paolo, let's take a look at what is going on on Amazon, right? Mm. You go on Amazon with a purpose because you want to buy one of my books, maybe the FinTech Innovation. the aisles on Amazon. Yes. (laughs) Well, that is... uh, we get into the topic yeah. too because that is very interesting and it really matches this uh, this example. But you see, you go with that person and then maybe you change your mind, yeah. but you are motivated uh, by your demand because you know what you want or more or less you know what you want. But very few people will go on Google and uh, start Googling if there is uh, a UCTS fund uh, that is investing uh, in Canadian stocks, 30% of the allocation, and between yep. 16 and 18% in Chinese stocks out of Shanghai. It doesn't really happen. No. People typically, the majority of people, are not self-directed. They have some money, they have some needs, and they want to talk to someone because they need to make a cunning financial decision. So they need to somehow share the burden with somebody else. And this is where the technology and the psychology of the investors are basically differentiating themselves. So digital is pull, demand, while investing is push, mm-hmm. is offer-driven. If this is so, some people may think, okay, so we don't have to worry about the robot advisors, we don't have to worry about the technology because uh, you will never be able to replicate these uh, engaged relationships. But mm-hmm. I don't think they're right no. because something is happening. Artificial intelligence, basically, is becoming more and more conversational and we see it every day. Mm-hmm. So the moment artificial intelligence becomes fully conversational in the consuming world first and then in uh, finance after, then digital technology will go from being pull into being pushed and the circle is closed. And this is also important to me because uh, it explains uh, what happens uh, between uh, fintech banks uh, and the tech giants. Maybe we see it more clearly 
in China, but I think it's something that we need to discuss in the Western world as well. So a lot of guys say, watch out because Facebook or Amazon, they want to become a bank and basically they will be the winners. Now, I don't think that these guys want to become a bank and they would be crazy through that, you know. They're not used to regulation on that No, level. they're not used to, but also banking is really a disrupted industry. It's going through a huge process yeah. of uh, transformation. But the point is that something is happening in their ecosystem which might force them to get into banking. So the reason why they're getting into banking is because of competition in their ecosystem. Let me explain that to you this way. So Amazon decided to sell Alexa to the American families. And so basically, mm -hmm. Americans can have Alexa in, uh, in their lounge. And what do they do? They can start now buying things through Alexa. I you remember, well. <laughs> right? So maybe do the same. But yeah. uh, now Amazon just didn't do that. Amazon also bought Whole Foods. Now, yes. what do you do basically every week? You do groceries, yes. right? So this is the thing that you do more often in your life in terms of uh, uh, spending habit. Yeah. Now, the moment you get used to ask Alexa to buy milk, because now Amazon has a distribution network of perishable goods, you may be hooked into what? Into using voice as a mechanism to perform your purchases habits. So now voice is the new marketing, or that mm -hmm. basically what some of the guys think it might well happen. Because voice operates at the last mile level. It's like when you make the final decision, you talk it to somebody, like when you go to yeah. a store, right? There's no book. translation factor between my thought. It, might, it, just, it just pours out versus... Exactly. So now, now we're not there yet, right, for no. AI to be Siri, so powerful. But Siri but, testifies that we're not there yet. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But we, we are starting, right? Yes. So you know that at some point technology starts growing very, very fast. Absolutely. So now... If this is so, let's discuss Facebook. What is Facebook? Facebook is a, a social media platform for me and you, Jason. Mm -hmm. But in reality, it's an advertisement machine oh, for uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> so now, before the Cambridge Analytica story, Facebook had another problem. Uh, Mark said a month and a half ago that they wanted to change the algorithm to make Facebook more relevant. Why? Because they noticed two things, that the population of their users on the platform is getting older. So basically, young generations are not using in Facebook like my generation mm -hmm. and then my generation is not that engaged uh, as before so basically people post uh, a bit less even though they may use WeChat and Messenger way more they post on Facebook a bit less mm -hmm. now if this is so it means that Facebook might not be able to price uh, their uh, uh, marketing uh, more so effectively like uh, like in the past now imagine the story voice becomes uh, the new marketing uh, you are on Facebook you see a product on Facebook but typically you don't buy on Facebook you go mm -hmm. to the store store offline or they go on Amazon. Now think about a corporate. Where would they put the marketing budget if voice becomes a new marketing? On Alexa or Facebook? They may be shifted to a different Absolutely. mechanism which they don't own. So that means that Facebook to me has to look at payments. Why? Because in China payment made WeChat yes. and uh, Alibaba, the giants that we know today, a completely yeah. different experience because uh, paying is super engaging, even more than posting your pictures because you have to do that anyway, like it or not. And it's interesting though, because I mean, when that relationship changes very differently compared to say Googling for something, right? Because when you Google something, you get a list of options, right? If I say, I want milk or I want, let's just extend it to, I want to buy a moderate risk portfolio. You don't expect the AI to respond with, here's a list of 20 things, right? You want the one answer. You right? get into a conversation or basically you may yeah. want the answer with an explanation for exactly. that answer because then we need to discuss a little bit the difference between a cognitive and artificial intelligence. Yeah. But now, just to complete the discussion around uh, Facebook and Amazon, the moment Facebook enters into 
payments. Uh, what happens to PayPal? Now, Facebook might have uh, a bigger client base than PayPal uh, and maybe can even be more powerful because, you know, you don't go on PayPal every day, right? But no. you are continuous on Facebook. So this yeah. is the experience of the Chinese guys. So PayPal announced a couple of things this year. Announced that they will put a corner, which is uh, an Australian robot advisor on their front end. So now you can move from paying hmm. into investing directly. And a few weeks ago, they said that they're going to launch core banking. That means uh, credit lines and credit cards as well. So hmm. So basically, I think that what the competition between Facebook and Amazon is forcing the other player to move up into the value chain of banking, moving out of pure payment systems and digital payments and get into digital investing. And then maybe one day will be digital insurance and so forth. So this is what is really happening. And this can be more transformative than fintech themselves because these guys have the capability of explaining to the consumers or to the investors their value proposition way more than uh, small startups because acquiring a new client on digital uh, is fairly expensive because mm. we just said that there is a psychology of the investor which is different than the psychology of the consumer which creates the asymmetry of information which is also the reason why when powerhouses like Vanguard or Charles Schwab's launch the robot advisor they can acquire a, a bigger uh, amount of asset under management because they can to talk to existing no customers yeah. that they are already trusted yeah. partners again and they can basically lure some uh, clients into the new mechanism and so these tech giants might well be able to do in the future but that means that if financial institutions consider and conceive innovation like a commoditization exercise they are going to fail in the medium to long term because if they self-commoditize themselves further the tech giants have more digital touch points with the clients they can exploit. So that means that financial institutions needs to learn from financial advisors whose business is primarily based on relationship between individuals in order to see how they can augment the capability of these guys to scale. Because the margins are going down for everybody, Mm -hmm. even for human advisors. But the way the relationship works there is the one that needs to be looked at. So that once you have it at the center, all the other products, which are the mortgages, the loans, the payment, will become functional to provide value into this relationship. There's an interesting dichotomy there, right? Because the digital side scales indefinitely, whereas the human one-to-one side with advisors doesn't, right? Like, I mean, the, you know, statistics like the Dunbar number that limit our ability to have intent, like deep relationships to more than more than 150. I mean, you look at a lot of advisory practices around the world and you see, you know, a thousand to one advisor ratios or 500 to one advisor ratios. I think that this kind of bodes for a trend I'm seeing elsewhere, which is those relationships need to become deeper and broader, but it's going to be with fewer people in general. So let me say, what is uh, the product or the solution that justify the fees uh, in the investment management relationship? I asked uh, this question Good to question. a few guys uh, uh, recently to Yves Perrier, who is the CEO of Amundi, the seventh largest asset mm-hmm. management uh, company in the world, trillions of asset under management. And he said, is advice and ongoing advice basically is the relationship. Now, how can you scale the relationship? Well, I think that you need to conceive uh, an O2O type of mechanism, which is online and offline, so a hybrid model where the technology enables the advisor to focus on what most matters to him and to the client in the relationship, which is the onboarding, which is continuous onboarding. It's like the wealth allocation framework. Mm-hmm. It's what some guys call the gamma of advice. While technology can take care of two things. So one is the investment solution, which is more and more commoditized. In mm-hmm. essence, there will not be much differentiation there. And also the 
capability of the client to self-direct himself partly to create an experience which is uh, offline when he wants it and he wants yep. to get more informed, but enables him to contextualize that conversation and knowledge together with an advisor who knows what the client did when he accessed the digital solution. Now, what is the turning point here? The turning point is the use of artificial intelligence to do what? Not to replace the relationship, which at some point, you know, might even happen in some industries, but to augment the mm. competences of people into this relationship. So augment the competence of the advisor to provide substantiated information to the client mm -hmm. and augment the capability of the client to start relating with digital in a way that he doesn't feel scared, but he feels more reassured. But it is important that the two elements are basically linked because there will always be for a long while a human element into this relationship. And this is the reason why some robot advisors started hiring human advisors like Betterment in order to mm -hmm. move the relationship forward because it's important to have a foot in the offline world. You cannot well, just even, operate even in the Vanguard online world. Even Vergat is a CFPs Absolutely, is a, a hybrid model. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the industry might shift. We said AI may become more and more conversational, but mm -hmm. there's a long way to go. For the time being, there's a huge power of AI to help individuals to institutionalize or industrialize, if you like, a bit more the relationship mm -hmm. and the narrative so that they can relate with people and help people to relate with them their goals uh, and uh, their personal issues. You know, it is also difficult to get the trust of uh, your clients and, and be told everything about the client's financial life and situation. But mm -hmm. the client may be inclined to have conversations with you on some part of the business and their problems and then being self-directed as uh, a way to aggregate, right, uh, mm -hmm. on the role wealth allocation framework. So if he likes the conversation, he might be inclined to use a tool where he adds more information, but he uses your narrative and your language. Absolutely. And that creates a reinforcement mechanism where they might start to trusting you a bit more at the time so that that locks in the the relationship you don't have to make the big relationship leap from day one absolutely. they can ease their way into it more absolutely but that's the reason why if you like IBM uh, never used the word artificial intelligence to define Watson we always use the word cognitive because uh, cognitive means that artificial intelligence is just one piece of the game there are other pieces that need to be respected. So the cognitive uh, experience and the cognitive engagement is really what matters. So That's such an interesting message aim. coming from like the company that built the machine, the one Jeopardy. Like, I mean, a lot of people are terrified by this concept. You know, Elon Musk's the biggest detractor of it. But to hear that you guys are looking at it from a framework of an overall larger scheme than just the AI. Our, our CEO defined the ethical standards for the usage of AI. And uh, she said uh, uh, many times that A stands for augmented intelligence, it's not artificial, artificial. intelligence. So going mm -hmm. back to the question that you posed me before about Google, the point is not just to tell somebody this is the answer. That's not cognitive. That's not augmented intelligence. That's not what. Yeah. Exactly. The point is understanding the answer. Yeah. That means transferring knowledge to the individuals so that they are motivated to act in a way that they understand the reasons why they made a decision more transparently. So this is value which is transferred to the individual. And honestly, I think that this is exactly what a good financial advisor does today. Yeah. It helps his client not just to trust him, but to understand the decision that they decide to make or he decides to make so that when the financial markets uh, unfold their ups and downs, uh, the client understands which were the risks and the potential returns that he was embarking into this relationship. It's kind of similar to how I see the way I do my job. Basically, we try to distill everything down to very simple 
terms or very simple presentations for clients. Very just, here's what you need to know. But then they're always encouraged to know that, hey, if you need to understand beyond that, we're going to explain the basics of it. But we can go deeper because really behind this very simple distillation process is this enormous wealth of knowledge that we have based this all on. And we can let the client determine at this point how deep down that rabbit hole they want to go mm -hmm. towards understanding. I mean, what you're talking about is, is very similar, just I think more more intuitive because it learns the degree to which people want to know. Yes, but there's even something more important yes. because when I say knowledge, I don't really refer to financial education like uh, mm -hmm. some people uh, define it. I think about the financial behavior. That's why the last section of my bestseller, FinTech Innovation, is dedicated to gamification. Mm -hmm. Basically, how to help people understand how they relate with money and how they react on the financial markets, knowing in details what is a hedge fund, what's a derivative, mm -hmm. would not help anybody, not even the traders. The point no. is, uh, how do I face risk and how do I face uncertainty? Now, that means that it's not just a problem of making sure that the financial institution and the advisor is a trusted individual and works in the interest of the client. It's also a problem of making sure that the clients understand that this value proposition because a lot of clients have a hard time understanding this because they have cognitive biases. How do I explain this? I, I, I would do it this way. Most of the clients go to an advisor or a bank thinking that they pay money to buy performance. And this is wrong because what they really buy is risk. Because nobody owns it. So then the advisor of the bank may know that. And sometimes they are not inclined to explain to the client because the client, you know, might be scared. They would not understand the story. Or the client may think, you know what? I've got a friend working for this, uh, you know, uh, well-known financial institution. Yeah, and they tell me that there is this product that can yeah. give you that performance. So, so it's very difficult because uh, individuals uh, are also greedy, generally speaking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but now... The real, the, the meta truth uh, on top of this truth is that the client doesn't really buy neither performance nor risk uh, from the advisor. What he buys uh, in many cases is the comfort of making a financial decision. That's hmm. why he needs to get into a conversation with uh, someone because that conversation generates trust. Now, if the advisor is good enough to transfer real knowledge and behavioral knowledge to the client, that creates stickiness through the cycle. So the client's moods is anxiety and there is a tendency to overreact on the financial cycle because he goes back to the real motivation for his investing, which might be the long term or a defined goal. If the advisor is not capable of doing that, the client would only entrust him because he thinks that he knows more, but mm -hmm. that doesn't really transfer value. So the moment that the market gets into a downturn, he will have a lot of troubles because that's when he has to work the most and get less of the money because it's linked to the AUM, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a crucial element to enable the advisors to scale because they can transfer knowledge, behavioral knowledge to the individual, and therefore also enables the banks to transform the business model, to create a new business model which is resilient, mm -hmm. right? That can be industrialized, that can be used by people which are augmented in their capability to have a proper relationship with the clients. In essence, not everybody can be a good advisor, but yeah. maybe technology can help to uh, level up uh, the playing field uh, so that more individuals can transform their work, uh, which now is linked uh, to sell products, uh, and they might be enabled now to sell more substantiated advice, uh, being reassured that they're also guided through this process. Then, like anything, technology 
is not neutral in the sense that you can use it for the good or for the bad, right? Mm -hmm. So it's left to the individuals uh, and to the corporations uh, to make sure that this is always done in the best interest of the client because that creates uh, value in the long term, which is in essence a sustaining innovation. That was a lot, <laughs> but that was fantastic. I want to go back to a couple of the points you, you made earlier. First of all, uh, you mentioned what's going on in China and you wanted to come back to that. Can, mm -hmm. can we go down that route? Well, as I mentioned before, let's say the US, uh, I said, uh, is where the technology is bold, largely speaking. Europe uh, has, uh, has its bottom regulation, which is very important, but China is the business model. Because what happens in China is uh, extraordinary. China was walled off uh, from the Western world so that you don't find the Amazon and the Google and the Facebook there, but you find all sorts of different uh, social media platforms. But in particular, you find companies like Tencent, uh, that is the owner of WeChat. Mm -hmm. WeChat was... Uh, a conversational app, basically the equivalent of Messenger or mm -hmm. uh, uh, WhatsApp, they added payments and they became uh, a powerhouse. That because was a basically, they have 1 billion customers that Jesus. use WeChat on a daily basis in order to basically connect all of the elements of their daily life. Now, why does this matter to me? It matters because in the fintech community, a lot of guys discuss about the idea of the customer experience. So they say, okay, maybe Paul is right. There is this pull and push mechanism. There is this cognitive bias on the client side. But you know what? We have such a wonderful customer experience that mm -hmm. all the clients will want to work with us, you know, because it's amazing what Better they can do with a phone. Right? Awesome. Now, yeah. now, what we just shows is that the customer engagement is way more important than the customer experience. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the customer experience can be commoditized very fast. It's like the Wi-Fi in a hotel. Ten years ago, I would have chosen the hotel because of the Wi-Fi. Now it's common practice. It still sucks right. no matter what you do. But, <laughs> yeah, sometimes, you know. But I went actually in Nice uh, yeah. uh, a few months ago, and then uh, there was no Wi-Fi in the hotel. But, you know, in France, they have uh, La Côte d'Azur, <laughs> so maybe you don't need that. Right. But um, in essence, uh, what happens here is that imagine that uh, you're not provide a solution which enables you to do instant payments or open a bank account in one hour instead of uh, 10 days. Uh, sooner or later, everybody will do that, right? So that can get commoditized very fast. What cannot be commoditized that fast is the relationship, once more, which is the engagement. The engagement is something that invites you to do things and to come back continuously. Mm -hmm. So basically to be not really entrapped, but if you like to create a stickiness between you, your platform and uh, your customer. Now, if I compare WeChat and Facebook, you know, I'm always selling my books. Mm -hmm. The Facebook experience uh, is much nicer to me. The pictures are larger. I mm -hmm. can trim the videos. I can do many things. On WeChat, uh, there's way more mechanical things that I have to do when I post the information, when I put my links. But what I can do on WeChat is amazing because I can connect all of the elements of my daily life. I can book an appointment with a doctor. I can book the restaurant. I can share. I know your driver's I can pay, license. I can, yeah. I can do everything, yeah. basically, right? So, so that makes sure that it doesn't really matter what happens. WeChat stays with you on a daily basis and hooks you into their relationship. Now, WeChat, mm -hmm. these Chinese platforms are the biggest distributors of uh, investment fund uh, in the world these days. And WeChat did something very interesting at the beginning of this year. They got a license to sell investment funds uh, directly. So they used it to be a platform that was aggregating, uh, if you like, uh, other apps yeah. uh, from third parties and fintechs so that they could uh, participate to this ecosystem and basically engage uh, the clients uh, that that are a client of WeChat on their platform. But now WeChat can also, if you like, uh, insource those uh, uh, relationships by selling directly to the clients. So soon they may even be able to generate these investment funds, which is typically <laughs> speaking, uh, 
they are uh, acting like uh, uh, passive investing vehicles. So now this is the transformation that we see in China that we don't see in the Western world. But we also have to say that China is a different regulation, is a different marketplace and not everything that China is gold. So now we need to make sure that we learn from the Chinese experience, but we do that in a way that the consumers and the investors are way more protected in terms of privacy, in terms of um, their capability of being augmented to make uh, conscious decisions, which means that the Western world needs to look and has the opportunity to look at sustaining innovation once more instead of looking at the disruption. Do you know the difference between sustaining innovation and disruptive innovation? I'm going to, if I attempt it, I will screw it up. I'm going to let you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so basically it goes this way. The disruptive innovation is when... Um, an industry is saturated, mm -hmm. so basically you don't understand the value proposition of your uh, provider of services or products. So somebody comes with a cheaper product that is uh, simpler to use, yes. and then uh, you like it and you buy it. It doesn't mean that it is better than the product before, but somehow... Back to the innovator's dilemma, exactly, thinking. Exactly. Yes. But then... Uh, all of those companies that, that forced disruption into the market uh, stayed relevant 10, 15 years after this. They found a way out of disruption to go back to sustaining innovation. That mm. means uh, you improve your product, you invite your uh, clients to buy the new version and more sophisticated. You uh, ladder up the, pro the, uh, the value exactly, chain. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you get more margins. Now, I can explain this to you comparing the iPod and the RoboAdvisor. So when uh, 25 years ago, my father came home uh, with a CD player, I used to listen to music with the tape recorder. You remember that? Yep. You're, you're my age. I'm still that old. Right? <laughs> so now that was a piece of sustaining innovation. I was fortunate that that could afford it because I think it was something like 1000 of today's Canadian dollars. Wow. And uh, yeah, every year I was buying into a new piece to build the hi-fi I had in the lounge. I bought the equalizers, the yep. loudspeakers, the subwoofer. But I got to the point that I didn't know what I had to buy next to be satisfied to improve the yep. quality of the music I was listening to. You might have done the same thing. I bought fiber optic cables. Oh, yeah. That oh, I those used, were right? so expensive. Like super yeah, $50 cables. Connected. Exactly. Yeah. And I thought, God knows, you know, what type of quality I'm going to get out yeah. of my hi-fi. I think Japanese I hear fiber. a difference. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, I saturated. I didn't understand, you know, why I had to basically spend more money to improve it. Think about uh, a bank before the global financial crisis. You had this open architecture that had a lot of complex products on display. You had the Supreme Securitizations Fund, the Target Fund, Formula Fund, Dutch yeah. Funds, uh, Certificates, Derivatives, Double Options, yeah. whatever oh, else. Yeah. So let's say that the clients stopped understanding, put it this way, the value propositions at the height of the global financial crisis. So now that's when, if you go back to the music industry, Steve Jobs put iTunes on the Mac and started disrupting the music industry forever because the iPod was not better music compared to my hi-fi. No, it, it was like 200 Canadian yeah. dollars. It, it's still no, yeah. right? it was originally probably more. No, I have a second generation iPod and I think I bought that used for 800 bucks. So that was not a cheap Canadian dollars. I think it was close to a thousand dollars also for that initially, the, the first one. Well, the first first, but when I, yeah. you know, the moment they decided that this, there was a so mass market, right? Yeah. That went viral. Oh, yeah. And so, if you like, uh, that is when disruption occurred, right? And even today, so if you like, people are not listening uh, to music using iTunes, they might use uh, Spotify or something else, yep. but it transformed the industry. Now, think about the robot advisor the same way. The robot advisor is not necessarily a better solution that uh, a personal financial advisor or planner. In some cases it is, I think it yep. is, and in some cases it's not. I Absolutely. think it's not. But the point is, if uh, the investor does not understand that the value proposition of the bank or the financial advisor any longer, he might be inclined to onboard on 
one. Different solutions, which is more frictionless and simplified uh, and more immediate to them. Some of them allow you to onboard with a single dollar. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's accessible to everybody as well. Exactly, very democratized. But now, think about the iPod again. If you go to the Apple Store, you don't find the iPod anymore, no. right? You find the iPhone, which I basically bought. So Apple didn't make $250 billion uh, cash in their coffers by selling uh, examples of disruptive innovation. Mm -hmm. But they moved again into sustaining innovation, selling products which were um, of more added value. So that's what the banks need to learn to do if they really wanted to digitize and to go through the disruption phase. But what is uh, sustaining innovation for banks therefore? Well, to understand that, I think we need to come up with a different example, which is not Apple. Mm -hmm. There is a company in the world that basically tries to move from a status quo, which is already fairly sophisticated, into a higher level status quo without going through disruption that means simpler and cheaper products. And that company is Tesla. Yes. Because Tesla, oh, yeah. you know, was not really born as a cheap car and immediately, no. uh, you know, appealed to a certain type of individuals. But Tesla... But it also defeated the concept that, that electric cars were going to be these, like, rinky-dink little things that no one's going to want to buy. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Yeah. Uh, the play of Elon Musk uh, is very risky, mm-hmm. right? So, <laughs> it's usually risky, right? I'm not all, saying all that... All the debt he has, yes, I agree. When, when, when we discuss innovation, you know, it might work, it may not work. So, we will see what happens with Tesla. But uh, Tesla is built around the two key elements, an engine, which is an electric engine, different than before. Some people say it's not even a car maker, it's uh, an electric battery provider. Absolutely. And analytics. Analytics that help you to drive Tesla in a different way because this yeah. information smooths your driving. So now think about uh, a digital banking platform. This uh, uh, digital platform needs to be powered by a different engine that mm-hmm. enables you to aggregate a lot of relationships and decision-making processes to digitize knowledge and motivation. That is what you do when you make a decision because you need to understand it better. But then you need analytics in order to convey that message and that understanding to the individuals, so the which same is artificial way, intelligence. Yeah. Same so way they basically upgrade the autopilot on a regular basis based on what they've learned. We need to create a digital framework for banking whereby they can take an analytics, see how we work with things, and figure out how to better improve that relationship over time. Right. But if you like, that. if you like, it is important that yeah. uh, everybody understand uh, their customers more. But the top priority yes. is for banks. Uh, to make sure that the customers understand banks. <laughs> you know, the same is the advisor, Absolutely. right? So yeah. that is the first and foremost uh, thing that uh, augmented intelligence can help you doing. It can help you basically getting closer to the client because you can create a digital yeah. experience where he's engaged and he can start playing with you on a certain topic and basically feel like uh, he's really empowered by mm-hmm. making decisions that transfers behavioral knowledge. That's why the concept of gamification is so important for me because it's a way of... Uh, transferring skin in the game to the individuals. Now, uh, skin in the game is uh, a very cool concept and, uh, and I love and I seem to love and I, and I should not talk about it because I have due respect for, for his amazing work. But I think that uh, we cannot just uh, confine this conversation to the level of the traders and uh, the hedge fund managers. The point is, how can we help individuals uh, that need to invest uh, in order to learn skin in the game. That means making sure they understand the risk involved in -hmm. terms of risk taking. Now, maybe traders should and people with money can basically afford to make uh, mistakes, but uh, many households might not be able to afford that. Now, making mistakes doesn't mean that you lose money on the capital markets. Making mistakes means that you don't know what they like you're doing, yep. right? So you're not, uh, yes. uh, if you like, aware of uh, the consequences of your financial decisions, which, if you like, is the amazing value of uh, a good conversation between a client uh, 
and he's a financial advisory partner. It's interesting. You know, just one of the thoughts that always comes to my mind when, game, when we talk about gamification anywhere, and it always goes back to the fact this has been going on for a much longer time than basically the digital realm. And I always think back to this one story I heard about when Napoleon created the Legion of Honor. And basically, someone asked him, why are you bothering with these things? These are just little baubles and trinkets. And his, uh, his response was, yes, but men will walk to their death in order to get them, right? And it's basically, and that's, and you look at that, that's basically the entire thing we created with gamification. Like, oh, you get a badge for, for finishing your day on, you know, Apple Health, big deal, because you have your Apple Watch, and, you know, you close all three rings, but those things lead to an action. And I think that the power of that, making sure that that is aligned with the actual best interest of the client is going to be super powerful in the next, in the next decade. You see, uh, gamification can be used in different ways. One can be to profile investors uh, because yes. you can give them a dry run where it basically it will never be like the real life, but it's better hmm. than questionnaires, right? So the simulated uh, trading portfolio, but now exactly, you actually Exactly, it's like a dry run, right? Oh. So maybe it should be compulsory like uh, when you get a driving <laughs> license for everybody. But again and again, because it's not based upon normative knowledge. It's based upon an experience and an engagement relationship where on digital you can gamify what can happen when you make financial decisions so that you start learning that it doesn't really matter how cool you are and knowledgeable you are if something happens in the market which is unexpected which is uncertainty can be like uh, twin towers for example right so the market will go down anyway right it doesn't really matter how uh, smart you are as an advisor right with your uh, financial analysis and so on and so forth and and people always forget that uh, this is always uh, this is also play but also goals uh, are part of games because uh, you play a game because you want to reach a certain goal. And as you play, you go through different stages where um, you're more and more engaged, it becomes a bit more complicated, and then you are fulfilling some of the previous uh, uh, goals and requirements until to reach the final destination. Let's say that your final destination is retirement, for example. Yes. Right? Because it is. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate goal. You have to make a lot of decisions before in order to make sure that you you retire with comfort. Uh, You need to learn how to save. You need to learn how to invest. You need to learn how you insure. You need to learn how you lend and borrow donate. Now, the personal financial equation uh, is the core of uh, the client-centric digital platform, which uses gamification as a way of helping people to understand the relationship about all of these elements. And it's a very simple equation. It goes this way. I make money because I work for IBM. Minus what I pay, digital payment, equals what I save. If a smart in saving, I can invest, I can lend and borrow like on a peer-to-peer platform, I can donate, I can retire, I can make insurance. The equation is very simple, but I have a problem that I don't have enough money to do all the things <laughs> I want to do. And as I age, I go through my life cycle, yeah. I change priorities. Now, it is so important to help people not just to optimize any point of this, uh, any element of this equation, right? But yeah. should I basically accumulate and then decumulate mm-hmm. or buy healthcare insurance mm-hmm. because maybe my priority after I retire? You know, the, the, the decision may be different for the variety of people, for the people because of their wealth allocation, basically, right? And what they have somewhere else inside of their wealth framework. Now, the key element is that big data operates on the left side of this equation because digital payment is there, but all of the added value relationships that are conveyed through products are on the right side of the equation. So the question is how you learn from big data in order to help people to make decisions on the other side of the equation by following what they do every day, but not just to do marketing, but to invite them to think more or less continuously about the impact of their daily decisions or the weekly decisions and monthly decisions on their future and long-term outlook. 
Next week, I will open um, a symposium at Wharton School uh, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania on retirement, basically the impact on fintech uh, on the retirement problem. And I think uh, this is of uh, uh, utmost importance because of two reasons. Because the next global financial crisis might be triggered by retirement at this time, because our retirement system mm-hmm. is very unbalanced yes. uh, everywhere in the world. And that also because that will create a need uh, for people to think about the long-term investing, uh, starting from uh, the early days of their professional life. You Mm -hmm. know how difficult it is uh, to discuss with your children when they are uh, 18 or 20 years old, the fact that they need to save money as well, thinking for retirement. But once, uh, unfortunately, the need will be more apparent, that will also create the need for people to to receive financial advice and financial planning. So basically, I think is opening up an opportunity for the financial advisors to deep dive more into the planning exercise in order to help households to self-direct themselves a bit more. Now, the fact is that the planning exercises are very expensive or typically they're expensive, not for everybody, you know, requires time. Absolutely. That's where a fintech can help because should facilitate to lower the asset cost into this relationship that helps you to make a kind of financial Absolutely. decisions that enables you to go through this game of finance and game of life yep. where all elements of your life are part of your financial equation and they need to be basically balanced carefully and if I would say consciously. So we're going to have to wrap up. We're nearing the end of our time. Uh, first of all, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Before we go, I wanted you to give, an, give you an opportunity to plug your books. So you have four of them. Can you tell us about them? The first one is uh, a portfolio management book uh, because okay. I wanted to address it to quant finance. And uh, it's at the heart of everything and the engine that motivates and generates uh, goal-based investing because it's Monte Carlo simulation of a time. So basically it tries to create an heuristic, which is a what-if analysis that enables you to do, if you like, ongoing advice. That means the optimal portfolio that I discuss in my first book titled The Probabilistic Scenario Optimization doesn't really exist even though I discuss about that because the moment you optimize a portfolio, it is suboptimal, right? Because market <laughs> condition changed. Yeah. But the key element is that you need to optimize not portfolios, but investment decisions. Yes. So in order to do that, you need, I believe, to play with the heuristics. So what if analysis that helps the client understand what if I do this, what if I do that, which are the consequences. So it may be suboptimal in mathematical terms, but you play with mental accounts, which is the way you can convey mm-hmm. most value to the client yeah. for decision making. I'm a big believer goal-based planning we, we've been yes yeah, so that was time. the first the second book is fintech innovation which is uh, very successful uh, is published by wiley the subtitle is from robo advisors to goal-based investing and gamification it is more accessible it has elements of quant finance but not much mathematics explains what the robo advisors are but pulls the lens uh, out of commoditized investment solution into goal-based investing and explains why even though most of them started as a b2c mechanism business to consumers they would have ended up into business to business or business-to-business-to-consumers, which Absolutely. is what is happening these days. Yep. And also discusses the robo-retirement, mm-hmm. which you like is the ultimate element. Planning is more important than advice on commoditized investment solutions. Mm-hmm. Venture capitalists may not understand that because they think volumes. So they yes. think the more the portfolio is volume. But in reality, the real value is in yep. the planning exercise. And then the third book was just released a few months ago. The title is uh, Mifid 2, Value Generation for Investors, and really wants to answer this question, which is uh, 
the product and solution, they justify the fees. Now, the onboarding of the client, uh, that means the understanding of his needs, uh, goals, mm -hmm. and the wealth allocation framework is uh, will justify the fees. The investment solution is super important mm -hmm. because it's how you transform the onboarding into an opportunity for investing the money. And the circularity between the two, which is an ongoing advice, is mm -hmm. what basically generates over time the engagement in the relationship and keeps on transferring knowledge from the advisor to the client and in some cases even building knowledge together because knowledge is not just about what happens in the financial markets knowledge is also about what does it mean for me as a client right what is the value and the meaning of money for me as an individual and we're all different and it's never the same so this third one starts from european regulation the mifid mm -hmm. 2 because they wanted to get the opportunity to showcase that we are talking about innovation in finance, portfolio theory, moving out of modern portfolio theory into scenario analysis for the long term. I'm discussing fintech innovation, artificial intelligence, robot advisors, but in reality, these are not abstract concepts. Regulators, at least in Europe, have something in mind that they want to help the industry to transform into more transparent and substantiated exercise. So now, that means that any money you spend on compliance, you can also spend in making sure that you reduce the cost of compliance by hmm. changing your business model and being more apt to be an institution that thrives and stays relevant in 2020, 2025, when digital will be even more common in our daily life and the big tech players may want to start playing the game of finance. It's all about the value generation for investors. Fantastic. Paolo, thank you so much. This has been very enlightening. I've spoken a lot less than I normally do because, frankly, I wanted you to keep speaking. So. <laughs> Look, for everybody interested, they can go to my website. Yes. ThePCRoney.com is like The Financial Times. <laughs> okay. Yes. And I got all links there. Excellent. Thank you again. So that was my interview with Paul Cerrone. I hope you enjoyed that. We went longer than usual, as I said, and frankly, there was a lot to digest there, and I think it was fantastic. So I'm uh, very happy with how that interview worked out, and I hope you enjoyed it. So once again, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts, and please take the time to sign up for our newsletter at fintechimpact.co. Until next time, I'm Jason Pereira. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.